The reading of God's word comes from Psalm 19 as we continue in this psalm, picking up in verse 89. Psalm 119, we'll read verses 89 through 96. Lend your attention. This is the very word of God. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I've seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. I ask you to join me in prayer as we ask his blessing upon our sermon text this evening. Indeed, O Lord, your word is exceedingly rich. Even the loveliest things in this world can be exhausted and eventually will fade away. But your word is an inexhaustible storehouse of treasure, and it will never fade away. So we ask that you would attend your word read and preached with that effectual ministry of the Spirit, distributing those choice blessings which Christ won, understanding, knowledge, a desire to know you more, a desire to walk in your ways. These things are such good gifts, Father. And we've received them as you have established us as your children, making making us heirs. And so we ask as your children, as heirs, Lord, that you would grant us a participation and enjoyment of this portion which is dawned in the Lord Jesus Christ and even now is coming to pass. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We can turn back to Titus. As we had an opportunity to consider words of comfort from there, we'll take our sermon text from the same passage, reading a few verses further. We'll read Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, which will structure our meditation on Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 29. I'll read Titus 3, 4 through 7 first, and then we'll turn to the catechism. But first, God's word. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Westminster Shorter Catechism 29 asks, How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. There's a nice cadence there of it to us by his Holy Spirit. Helpful for memorizing. Well, if you want to know Jane Austen, I suggest you read Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility. If you want to know Charles Dickens, you should probably read Tale of Two Cities, David Copperfield, perhaps Great Expectations. If you want to know Tolstoy, you should read Anna Karenina and War and Peace. If you want to know Dostoevsky, you should read Crime and Punishment and the Brothers Karamazov. I think it's fair to say that if you want to know an artist, you should probably attend to their primary works. Not these marginal pieces. Nobody cares about Mansfield Park. I'm sorry. <laughs> Not these marginal pieces, these pieces that haven't received the attention that these primary pieces have understandably received. And in these primary works, we come to know something about these artists. Samantha and I grew up in a charismatic church um, where... Uh, the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit were uh, the primary discussion when it came to the Holy Spirit. Uh, but Scripture is everywhere plain, and catechism is uh, just as plain. Um, the extraordinary gifts are not the primary work of the Spirit. That's not the main thing. It's remarkable. Of the three members of the Trinity, we likely feel like we're the least acquainted with the Holy Spirit. Now, partly this is understandable. We don't understand the invisible things. Jesus uses an illustration of the wind and its mysterious nature to help us get our minds around the Holy Spirit. The wind, you see it, but you don't see it. You see its effects. So partly our unfamiliarity with the Holy Spirit makes some sense, but it's become even more confused than that, particularly in United States Christianity, for better or for worse, evangelicalism is deeply, deeply indebted to these Pentecostal and revivalistic explorations of Christianity, which have maximized the extraordinary gifts of the Spirit. That's not the main thing. And in profiling that, we kind of missed the main thing. What's the main thing? What's the primary work of the Spirit? It says it right here. Applying the redemption purchased by Christ to individual hearts. Opening eyes to see the fact that you're a sinner. Opening eyes to see that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. Opening eyes to see that his righteousness alone is the grounds of our justification. 
Opening eyes to see that the spirit of adoption now cries out in our hearts, Father, to the one from whom we previously ran. Opening eyes to see that actual new life is coming to pass in hearts and minds that formerly despised the things of God. This is the redemption which Christ has purchased at the cost of his life. And this is the work of the Spirit in bringing us into enjoyment of that redemption, into participation with that salvation that Jesus Christ has purchased. Now, there are other things that the Spirit does, granted, 100%. But this is the main thing. These are the primary works. This is the war and peace of the Holy Spirit, as it were. (laughs) This is how we know the excellency of the person of the Spirit in delighting in the work of salvation, which he makes us partake in. So let's consider in brief the work of the Spirit in redemption, considered here from question 29 and in Titus 3. First, we can note that, once more, redemption is from our triune God. You hear that in the passage. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is a Trinitarian portrait of redemption. We delight to declare that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are operative as the one true and living God, three distinct persons to bring us into redemption to bring us out of darkness into light, out of sin into life, out of unrighteousness into holiness. This is not the work of any one member cajoling the other members. This is the work of our triune God. But it's also fair to point out that when it comes to our contact with God, as it were, it is the Spirit whom we touch, or rather, who touches us. It is the Spirit who intimately takes up residence in the human heart, who intimately influences minds and hearts, yielding those gifts which Christ has purchased, particularly to individuals. When it comes to the application of redemption, it is the Holy Spirit who comes to the fore as the person with whom we are most intimately acquainted. Consider all of God's works as being triune in nature, but it's appropriate to consider specific features or specific aspects as uniquely attributed to one of the persons. So when we speak of the Father, we speak of the author of redemption. When we speak of the Son, we speak of the one who accomplished redemption. When we speak of the Spirit, we speak of the one who applies redemption. And this is in accord with Scripture, each receiving a glory, as it were, unique to them all, but we do not want to make too fine of a distinction. First Peter 1, verse 2, seems to get at a similar direction when it talks of those who are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. That 
word sanctification there, meaning the ones who are set apart, those who are taken and moved out of darkness into light, moved from the age that is passing away to be participants in the age which Christ has initiated with his resurrection. It is the Spirit who reaches out and touches us. Abraham Kuyper writes, The eternal and ever-blessed God comes into vital touch with the creature by an act proceeding from the Holy Spirit. Michael Horton likewise says, It is the Holy Spirit who enters the very precincts of the human heart. It's remarkable to consider that in a way, even before we knew Jesus, we knew the Spirit. Now the Spirit delights to magnify Christ. But it is the Spirit who came to us. It is the Spirit who reached for you and turned the lights on, as it were, such that you could see the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 13 highlights the wonder that the Spirit has come to us, that the Spirit has reached for us as the one who has been poured out because of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 13, By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. This is what characterizes the church age. The fact that it wasn't just one person, a Samson or or a Gideon or a Jephthah, who were clothed with the Spirit from on high. A Moses or a... Uh, Aholiba is the one who designed the tabernacle. He was remarkably gifted. You might say the, 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 the Tolstoy of the architectural world in the Old Testament. He's been gifted with this remarkable spirit. One or two, a handful, but certainly not the majority. What characterizes the church age now? Jesus Christ received the spirit of which they tasted in part without measure. Such that when he ascended to the right hand of God, he poured the Spirit out, not upon one or two, but upon old and young, male and female, in fulfillment of that prophecy in Joel that Peter cites in Acts 2. It is the age of the Spirit. We've been given of the Spirit. All those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ have been given the very Spirit of God. The fact is that the redemption which is purchased by Christ has been brought into saving relation to our hearts by none other than the Holy Spirit who has taken up residence in God's people. Is it fair to say that there's a lot of confusion over the person of the Holy Spirit? Is that reasonable to say? Over these next questions, in many ways, we're considering salvation. But at the same time, we're considering the work of the Holy Spirit. The excellencies of his person as he brings us to enjoyment of that choice blessing, redemption, purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ, designed from the Father from eternity past. This is the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So it stands to point out that redemption is supernatural. Redemption is supernatural. It is the Holy Spirit who makes effectual application of redemption to us. Redemption brought to a human heart is a work of God's Holy Spirit. 
Salvation is a work of God's Holy Spirit. It is not the product of the natural abilities of human being. The organic development of a latent human potential. It is a supernatural work. You can notice the natural trajectory that Paul highlights in Titus, our passage, starting in verse 3. Titus juxtaposes the work of the Spirit, the goodness and the kindness of God brought to bear on us by the Spirit, with the former condition where we were exercising our natural capacities. Verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's man's trajectory. Now we say natural, but you know that we mean by virtue of fallen nature, by virtue of the corruption that man now experiences by virtue of the fall. For man to exercise what is latent in him is right there on display in verse 3. That's what the exercise of man's latent capacities are. That's what the exercise of man's natural fallen abilities are. And then he affirms this later. He saved us. He saved us. He saved us. This is not the organic extension of the path that we were on. This is not the natural conclusion to the stories that we were writing. This is not just give me a little bit longer in this direction and I'm sure I'll get there. This is a supernatural intrusion. He saved us not because of works done by us. He saved us in spite of the natural capacities that we were exercising. He saved us in spite of the works which were emanating forth from our fallen and corrupt hearts. He saved us in mercy. He saved us in grace. He introduced something that we didn't have. He introduced something extraordinary. Grace intruded by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's fair to say that the natural powers of man, Paul gives a pretty dark picture here of those powers, and that's true. But elsewhere in Scripture, you get a pretty impressive vision of the natural abilities of human beings. We considered it briefly this morning, didn't we, with the Tower of Babylon? I mean, that's a remarkable accomplishment. I, even God acknowledges that. This, this is impressive. Like, there's not going to be much that they can't do when they pull their resources and put their collective minds together. In one sense, the natural abilities of man are remarkable because we are in the image and the likeness of God. We are by far the most impressive creatures in this creation, and it's not even close. Like, I don't care what people are saying currently, like that there's just like this little gap between us and these other creatures. Like, they're getting it together. They're not getting it together. <laughs> like, they're remarkably limited in what they can do. Man, on the other hand, has a remarkable amount of potential because he is the image and like you just look at human history 
Like, look at the developmental capabilities that human beings have. But if you turn those up to 11, <laughs> you get an attempt to dethrone God. That's what the Tower of Babel is. Take those powers, take those abilities, and just ratchet them up, and you get rebellion against heaven. You get an impressive attempt to defy the true and living God. Salvation is not the organic conclusion of the natural capacities of man exercised. Salvation is a supernatural intrusion of the Holy Spirit applying to us the redemption that the God-man purchased as the one obedient servant who has ever walked this earth. Redemption is supernatural. And that's humbling. There's some remarkably gifted people in this congregation. Remarkably gifted people. Remarkably gifted artists. Entrepreneurs. <laughs> intellects. If you're anything like me, you think back on your life. You think, I've used the gifts that I've been given for the exaltation of my name. By and large. The gifts that I've been given, the health that's coursed through my life. Just join Augustine and think about the vital powers that are so uniquely yours in youth. How much energy you had. How much strength you have. Who used it for the advancement of God's kingdom? No, we used it for the advancement of our name. We used it for the advancement of our kingdom. We built our silly towers on the plains of Shinar, and it was just in God's grace that he knocked it down. It was in God's grace that he opened our eyes to see that the wonderful capacities that we had been given had employed to establish a name for ourselves, had been employed to advance our foul glory to our own harm and the harm of others. So it's humbling to consider the remarkable gifts we've been given and what we use them for apart from grace. And even as participants in grace. Does anybody here say, no, no, yeah, I'm the exception. I love the Lord, God, with all my heart, soul, strength. All the time, only, exclusively. Shame on you, you're kidding yourself. It's humbling, it's humbling, it's humbling when we consider what we do with our natural capacities as remarkable as they are. But there's also reason to rejoice because God didn't leave us to that. He didn't let us build that tower and then come face to face with an all-consuming God. <laughs> he spared us. He judged us in the Lord Jesus Christ. He reoriented us and he's continuing to humble us as he's allowed the flesh to continue as a reminder of just how proud we are. And he uses these things to reposition our hearts in humble dependence upon him when we see that he and he alone is worthy of glory and honor and trust. Redemption is supernatural. And we can make a further point which is slightly different. Redemption is monergistic, which is a slightly different point. Redemption is monergistic. We can go just a slight step forward and say, Salvation is not simply supernatural aid. As if man were just in need of a, of a nudge. Just, just a slight correction. So you're almost there. Just reach out. Salvation is rescue. I mean, 
You can use any rescue that takes place where the object of rescue is alive, and it's going to come short of the rescue that we experience. (laughs) Because the stunning reality that structures salvation and the proof that it's monergistic is that everybody's dead. (laughs) That's the starting point for the sinner. You were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your sins. You were dead in your iniquities. That's, there's no help for a dead person save a one-sided imparting of life. <laughs> and that's what Scripture says salvation is. That's what the Spirit brings. You see this in the picture of Christ coming to the tomb of Lazarus. You see, there are a number of lovely realities and glimpses into the nature of salvation that's come to us. Lazarus come out is ineffective if the man is dead. And it's ineffective if that is a word like every other word that's spoken from every other person. I don't care how pleasant your voice is, you could sing it in the tongues of Botticelli. That, that might be a stretch. She's an opera singer, just glorious voice. Like, Lazarus, come out. It doesn't matter. You say it embodied in like the loveliest physique that has ever existed. It doesn't matter. You say it with an accent that just makes the heart melt. It doesn't matter. Your word, my word, the loveliest word that a human being has ever uttered has no power to make alive. Christ's word makes alive. And part of the reason it makes it alive is because it's attended by the Holy Spirit. And so you get this picture of Christ's word going forth, attended by the Spirit of life, those same, the same Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. Now attends the gospel going forth to bring forth life, not from a neutral heart, from a hostile heart. <laughs> From a heart that is dead, life, light, bursts forth. Faith, hope, love, bursts forth. Salvation is not a nudge in the right direction. The Spirit isn't a buoy that Christ exhorts us to take hold of. The Spirit is the Spirit of life, and it saves. Now you can press this too far and say that there's no willingness in salvation. That's not true. There's all sorts of elements in our salvation where there's an actual renewal of our persons such that we're made willing, that we freely believe, that we freely repent. But in no control of those blessings is that ever set up as man's independent contribution to salvation. Faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. Holiness is a gift. Obedience is a gift. All of these elements which we actually participate in at a fundamental level as new creatures are so far from being man's independent contribution to salvation that anyone who claims that is dangerously close to detracting from the glory of the Lord 
on display in the salvation which he accomplishes for his own name. Salvation is monergistic to the praise of his glorious grace. And that means all boasting is properly in him. Now, a lot of you are intelligent, but none of you believe ultimately because you're intelligent. A lot of you are gentle and kind, but none of you believe because you're gentle and kind. The only reason anyone believes, the only reason anyone participates in redemption is because the Father set his love upon you, Christ died for you, and in God's good timing, the Spirit opened your eyes and brought you into the kingdom of the beloved Son. You are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ to the praise of our triune God. And we're going to hymn this forevermore when all things become plain. And the last point we can make is that redemption is multifaceted. We can consider redemption as a, as a whole, as a singular, the redemption purchased by Christ. But God in his wisdom has designed this to entail various steps various stages, various facets, such that we can reasonably consider this from different angles and in a logical order. You can hear this already in the passage. It says, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, justified by grace, becoming heirs according to the hope of life, all of which is he saved us, but each of which is a discrete component of that singular reality of salvation, of redemption. So we can speak about effectual calling. We can speak about justification. We can speak about adoption and other elements beside. We're invited to consider the singular redemption more like a symphony or a painting where all these pieces work together to complement and to awe at the wonder that's being produced. It's not a monolithic reality. It's a a multifaceted, richly textured, perfectly designed reality such that you're in awe at a symphony. You you listen to Bach and you hear the various components and the one time they're They're each taking their various parts and one instrument plays and then another comes in and then some cooperate and you're just amazed at this one thing that is a symphony or a painting. We talked about a Caravaggio painting this morning. The wonder of this play of dark and light and the various characters. And it's one painting, it's one picture and yet all these pieces work together to yield something glorious, richly textured, perfectly suited for man's fallen conditions such that we will awe at the wisdom of God, at the salvation which he has designed for us. So in Reformed theology, we talk about the order of salvation, the ordo salutis, where the major components of salvation are discussed in their logical and sometimes chronological relation. Sinclair Ferguson clarifies, the ordo salutis denotes the orderly arrangement of the various aspects of salvation in its bestowal on men and women. For Michael Horton, the order of salvation is a logical golden chain leading from election in eternity past to redemption, justification, adoption, sanctification, and glorification. I don't know if you've lost any sleep 
over the question of why didn't God just translate us to glory as soon as we came to faith? If you lost sleep, I'm like, why would he let us like battle with this flesh, labor in this world of futility? It's his good pleasure to do so. He had his reasons for our good. He could have. He could have translated us to glory. He could have had us all walking around as glorified ones in this world. He didn't, though. He declares our justification, our adoption, these glorious realities that are declared about our status in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this opens up this painful and difficult reality of sanctification, which is going to find its glorious consummation in glorification. And this experience of salvation, which finds its anchor in eternity past, as God has set his love on us in election. All of this is the rich tapestry of salvation, which God in his infinite wisdom has designed. And so we do well to attend to the various components and not get confused about the difference, say, between justification and sanctification. The difference between the static reality of adoption and the exhortation to imitate our Father that's closer to sanctification. But not just that. We do well to be patient because God could have translated us perfectly into a sinless state the moment we believed. But he didn't. I don't know why he didn't, but he didn't. But I am confident that it's good and it's wise. And then in the final analysis, he wouldn't have allowed us to persist with the flesh if it had not been decreed that it would issue forth for his ultimate glory. So do not get discouraged. Some of us don't progress with the speed with which even we want to progress. Some of us are exhausted at the thought that we're still dealing with tendencies of the heart that we've been dealing with for years. I would never encourage you to give up that struggle, give up relying upon the strength of the Lord, but I would also encourage you not to grow discouraged. For the one who began a good work in you will certainly see it's through unto the day of Christ. And that's another implication of this golden chain, isn't it? If he started it, he's going to finish it to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you did not leave us to our own devices, that you opened up for us the riches of your love in the Lord Jesus Christ and brought them most intimately to our hearts by the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit. Father, we would grow to know him more, to delight in his work, to seek his work, that you might be praised for the wisdom of your provision, the excellencies of your gifts. Father, we rely upon ourselves so frequently, and yet it is the Spirit whom you call us to know and to rely upon as we walk by the Spirit. And gratify not the desires of the flesh. We sow to the Spirit, and from the Spirit we reap eternal life. Father, teach us these things. You are so good to us. We pray, Father, that we might grow in our understanding of them, that we might yield to you the worship of which you are worthy. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.